currently uh, a reparationist, but he has uh, um, a very interesting history. I'm going to start it off by saying that most of us in especially in the black community, are very familiar with the movie Dead Presidents, starring Lorenz Tate. Now, Lorenz Tate's character, um, Anthony Curtis, I believe it was, was the, that character was based, I don't know how loosely or tightly, I guess you can answer that, but it was definitely based on your life. Is that correct? Brother That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And did I say your last name right? That's uh, correct. You did. Moretazon. Moretazon. Okay. Uh, excellent. Now, I wanted to start by, with that familiar, and I'm sure that's you're used to that, but I wanted that, that familiarity um, to be uh, uh, how we kicked off this interview. Sure. Because, I, to be honest with you, that's my top... I want to say top three, but definitely top five movies of all time, and <laughs> definitely one of my favorite characters of all time. Uh, all right. So uh, when I found out that that was based on you know somebody I knew, I was like, "Whoa, wow! That's always been <laughs> a you know a, it's it's an excellent movie." Uh, Lorenz Tate did a wonderful, wonderful job, and I didn't even know that they, that it was based on you know an actual person or a person's life. Um, so let me ask you, how um, how did how did that come about? How did 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 um, uh, the Hughes? I think it was the Hughes brothers that produced it. That's correct. Okay. Uh, how did how how did that even come about? That that you that this character your character made it to the big screen, or your your true self? I mean, you probably are a character too, but <laughs> but uh, that that you made it to the big screen, big screen. Okay, but, okay, brother Cole, I'd be happy to, uh, to share that with you, and thanks so much for taking the time to uh, interview me on such uh, uh, personal questions. Um, I think it all started with, of course, from my uh, time that I was in Vietnam. All right, and after Vietnam, uh, while in Vietnam, we was known at the time as Bloods of Vietnam, B-L-O-O-D-S. That's where the whole term Bloods come from, from out of Vietnam. It meant that we were willing to share our blood for each other. First and foremost, I would rather see you out of the field than myself. So that's where it come from. And so we always talked about that, that is the Bloods of Vietnam, what we would do once we returned home. And many nights when we came, was out there, just just come back out of the field and, and was basically what we call it on a sit down for three days. That's where we just come back in out of the field and rest and recuperate. And uh, we do a lot of talking with each other face to face. And uh, we were always talking about what we would, what we will do once we got home. And I, you know, of course, I made some commitments to him. And I'm, I'm a man of commitment. I try to follow through my commitments. So I ended up. Uh, <clears throat> working for the, the the post office, which is now the Trump Hotel. Can you believe it or not? And uh, I was offered a job, two jobs, one in the police department, one or, or in the post office. I chose the post office for obvious reasons, away from, you know, the military or uh, combat. And while I'm there, I found out where the flow of money was coming through and coming from uh, in uh, through the post office. And I decided, me and one other uh, brother from Vietnam, combat soldier, decided to, to, you know, to what we call liberate that money and make sure that our community uh, uh, 
uh, got the benefit of that money. And uh, so we, we did. I laid out the uh, plan for it. And uh, it was a, a very, what if you could call it successful armed robbery, just what it was, you know, except for the end result of that is one of the uh, 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 people involved with the crime, who I really didn't know, but was brought into it by another friend of, friend of mine, uh, ended up uh, turning state evidence, right? So anyway, we, we, we liberated the truck, and uh, I ended up... Uh, <laughs> Um, I think we, we, we thought we were going to get about $2.3 million off the truck. It ended up being about 350000 something like that. More than likely, that amount of money was on the truck. We just, in a hurry, uh, those who was, who was assigned to grab the money uh, didn't realize that it was more than one bag. And so, subsequently, uh, about uh, two months later, in fact, that was like a year and, a year and what, three months, two months, after I came from home from war. From, from the Vietnam War. So I was still in my, I was still in my PTS mode. I was angry. I was angry about what was going on uh, in the United States at that time. I was angry about, we had to fight two wars in Vietnam, one against the uh, Vietnamese and the other against these white racist, white supremacists in base camp. And they always identified themselves by flying the Confederate flag over their hooches, on their jeeps, and wherever, and even the captain's office. <laughs> say that, even the captain's office. Uh, so, so, so you know, we, we, you know, the blood was said, "Look, we're going home to fight our war." Cause we knew, we knew what was going on in in the United States to our parents, to our little uh, news uh, snippets that we would get through the uh, military times. And uh, so, I kept my commitment, liberated this money, was getting ready to go. And my whole purpose was then was to help out the. Uh, it was, the, it was a medical team, a student medical team from Howard University putting up uh, medical centers in Washington, D.C. So my goal was to assist them and then get out of Dodge, go to uh, South Africa and be a part of the ANC. Um, and so that didn't occur because of the subsequent legal capture. And that is important for me to say this, to get you this part, because I talk about this in the book called Bloods. Now, Bloods is where is the book where my true story is. Right. And what is the story that is loosely based on that the, that the movie Dead President is loosely based on? I say what they say loosely because they wanted to concentrate primarily on uh, veterans coming from Vietnam because that story had really hadn't been on the screen. Black veterans, that is. Okay. And so, so since my story was a real multi-dimensional one, being a veteran, uh, being a, uh, involved with the robbery and whatnot, versus you know, and then being a at that time a black activist. Oh, they thought it was a good one to do. So that's how I got started. Okay. And and specifically, that book is Bloods, an oral history of the Vietnam War by black veterans, uh, the author being Wallace Terry. So that's anybody correct. that's listening um, can look that let up. Me say, let me say a word about Wallace Terry. Wallace Terry was a New York Times, Times Magazine war correspondent in Vietnam for two years. Okay. And he, you know, he uh, realized what was going on as well. He was su not surprised, but he really was enlightened a great deal through uh, being out in the field with, uh, with, with uh, black veterans, being in base camps with black veterans, being on ships with black veterans, and got our story. And there's a, there's a Motown album called Guess Who's Coming Home? Voices of the Bloods of Vietnam. You got to get that, man. That is okay. a, now, now, you got, you got to make sure there's, there's only adults around because we all we talk, we're talking about F, MFs and all that type of stuff. Every 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 two seconds, you know. Oh, so, so that's an album, 
Oh. It's an album called. It's online right now. In fact, it's on my Facebook page. Okay, I'll I'll check <clears> it out. But is it an album of music or an album of conversation? No, it's an album of conversation of Wallace Cherry interviewing okay. Bloods in Vietnam. Oh, black soldiers in Vietnam. Well, I have a I have a large collection. I have over four, maybe five thousand albums. So I'm gonna have to add that one to my collection. Yeah, you got to add that one, bro. You got to have it. it's online. I just posted up recently because I was talking to some young brothers about uh, the cold concept of bloods. You know, it was and, a, it was it was a, it was about blood love. It was, wasn't about blood killing. You well, follow me? I follow you, and we have mm -hmm. um uh uh what Spike Lee's new movie is uh entitled The Five Bloods, I believe. <laughs> I think so. I haven't really been following that yeah, because so, I it, just just the fact that it's in the it's it's in it's in the moment. It's in the news right now uh, because um, uh, that movie on Netflix just came out a couple of weeks ago. Yes. It's called The Five Bloods. So I uh, the, the veterans um, referring to each one another as bloods in that movie. So, Let me say this here. Let me mm -hmm. say this. I'm sure that Spike Lee sampled out of the 20 stories that's in the book Blood, because that's where the stories are about black soldiers in Vietnam, out of our own mouths, out of our own hearts, right. and out of our own minds. So, you know, he did a good sampling, and I would think, I haven't watched the movie, uh, I heard a lot of things about it, I would, I, it didn't really interest me into watching it, but I probably will once it come on to uh, uh, digital TV, you know, that type of thing. Right, absolutely. That'll um, be about three years from now. Now let me let me let me go back to the war because uh, first and foremost the question is were you conscious because you talk about post war even when you um, uh, did the robbery that it was for almost uh, uh, as I would say Robin Hood sort of. Um, uh, 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 intentions, a redistrib redistribution of wealth. Uh, sure, that's exactly what it was. Were you conscious? Bef uh, 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 were you? Con would you consider yourself black conscious before you went into the in, in, into the war, the Vietnam oh, no. War? No way, no way. I was just a gun hole, nineteen uh, year old. Uh, you know, black man, you know, uh, and that 19 year old came through my being, you know, in high school and on forward up to 19 years old. So I was just gung ho, man. You know, I was, I, I wasn't scared of nothing. I would do anything. The brothers that I was, was on the block with me always, if we wanted to do something, they would all say, look, let's, uh, the kid know, they used to call me the kid at the time. Okay. So the kid know how to do it. They would always, you know, uh, 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 look towards me to find the solution to do whatever we wanted to do. And uh, so that was the extent of it. You know, that was just like, you know, that, that was a little, that was the extent. It wasn't nothing about politics or anything like that. There was a brother by the name of uh, Irvin Phillips. He and I was the same age, went to the same school, lived about a block away, family, you know, pretty much were interlocked in terms of brothers and sisters. Uh, and uh, we said, hey, we're going to go and join the military. And I said, nah, I, I, we had always said that, right? And I said, nah, when he, once we got the draft, draft day, I said, nah, man, I, I don't think I'm going to join because my brother, you know, he, he you know, he, he's really speaking like hard against it, you know. And I said, so what I do, I just wait till I, you know, if they draft me, I'll go. That's what, that was my position. And so I got drafted. He had always he went on in as a volunteer. He volunteered to go into the war. I just sat back and wait till they drafted me. So that's how I got into the military. I was not a uh, you know I was mil I was politicized in Vietnam what to the experience. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So uh, you're probably about to answer my next question. What do you mean you were politicized? 
I was politicized by my observation and being a subject of a lot of racism in the military, all right? Through top command all the way down to your squad leader. That means that black soldiers got the worst of everything, got the worst job, worst duties, the most dangerous duties, those types of things. Uh, And most often was put on point just as soon as they got out in the field. Point is the first person that goes out, first person that's in front of the squad, first person in front of a platoon uh, to be hit or to be uh, identified by by the enemy. And so that's the worst position. Now, when I came out to the field, they gave me a choice. Either I could go point or carry the machine gun. You know, my, my thinking, my deep thing is I want that machine gun. You know, right. I'm, I want the machine gun because if anything go down, I know what I'm going to do with it, you know. And so I end up carrying the machine gun for about five, six months, you know. Okay. So and, and and I'm just saying that's where I was politicized, seeing all the how the, right. these people was giving assignments, duties based on race. So did you not growing up? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Washington D.C. 15th and East Capitol is that neighborhood, meaning that I lived on 15th and East Capitol, 15th Street. The closest intersection was East Capitol Street, and then at another time, much earlier in my life, I lived at 14th and Independence Avenue, which is about two and a half blocks away in the same neighborhood. Uh, right there, that if, you, I, if, if I want to give you a visual, it was right between D.C. Stadium and Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill started around about the first, the Union 100 block of North uh, of East Capitol, and goes all the way down to the 2000 block of East Capitol, which is where the stadium is. And I was sitting, our home was right there on the 1400 block. 1436 to be exact. Wow, okay. So, I asked you that because D.C., was it primarily a, a, a black city then? Was it Chocolate City back then? It was It was Chocolate City all the way, man. Banneker City, we also called it. What city? You know, Banneker City, based uh, off uh, of the... Ba- Benjamin Banneker. Okay, wow. Mm-hmm. I never heard it being referred to as Banneker City. Oh, yeah, big time. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, so 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 is it safe to say that you didn't experience that everyday, in front of your face, racism until uh, uh, you got to into the military? That's right. Okay. Fort Jackson, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, first part. So I went from Fort Jackson, South Carolina, basic training, Fort Jackson, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, in uh, uh, advanced infantry training, what they call AIT, and then straight to Vietnam. So my whole thing was from D.C., South, South Carolina, Vietnam. So just, let's be clear here, too. Bloods. Bloods was only, were there any white soldiers could, that were considered bloods? Oh, uh, uh, No. Hell no. It was. It was. You know, no. 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 Not at all. Okay. So it was probably it was strictly a black. A black. A it's strictly a black stamp. You know, it, it, it was. It was strictly a self-determining uh, black thing. You know, it's a cultural thing in the war. Okay. You see, and based on what I just shared with about all the how the, the, of the discrimination in the war, you know, so, so we knew we had to come together. Let me give you an example of how uh, how significant. Uh, um, the concept of bloods was in terms of our unity. Down in South Vietnam, down in the southern part of Vietnam, a place called Long Bend, a little uh, country, uh, a country called Long Bend, and uh, there they had the military stockade. We called it Long Bend Jail, LBJ. Now LBJ was built. If, if you just if you knew the data, or once you see the data, you see it was built for black soldiers. Ninety-five percent of the soldiers in the stockade was black soldiers, man. 
you know? Wow. And because of the way they were, it was because of how we reacted to the treatment that we were receiving. Okay. I barely escaped. I look, I barely escaped LBJ. Please, I'll tell you. I got with, I mean, I barely escaped that. Uh, and uh, so at, 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 at any moment, I knew I could end, could end up there just as soon as, based on what a reaction I would give to a particular sergeant or, or higher command, you know? Wow. Okay. Gotcha. So you could get sentenced to LBJ, huh? Oh, wow. yeah. Big time. LBJ was just that, man. It was, it was the stockade for black soldiers. Mm. Gotcha. Now, I want to um, just, there, there, there's something interesting, and it's, um, uh, there were two, in the book Bloods, you mentioned two um, uh, soldiers that were um, influential, or at least stood out. Their stories or, uh, stood out to me. One was named uh, Studs Armstrong, which I, which I, I think Bokeem Woodbine's character must have been um, based on. I'm not I'm- no, I'm not sure. I wasn't in that conversation with the Hughes brothers how they applied what what stories and blood they okay. applied to each well, character. I'll tell you this much. Own, you know? I'll mm-hmm. tell you this much. Bokeem Woodbine's character was the character that um, uh, kept the uh, head of the Viet Cong that he killed. He kept. Oh the- yeah. Oh, that brother. That brother. Well, it wasn't a brother. It was a white boy in my was squad. It? Okay. All right. He was a white look a white guy from Philadelphia. Of, of white guys I never forget killing. that brother. Yeah, he was he was he was he was a squad leader. Okay. And I and I dreaded getting into his squad because I knew he was gonna volunteer me for every damn thing, and that was gonna be a big conflict. Now, now, you know? now you you described him as ruthless. Yeah, cold blooded. Okay. And you described another brother that you grew up with that ended up being um, in your uh, I don't know what you call it, your squad named Richard yeah, Streeter. Yeah. And you yeah. you describe describe Richard Streeter as brave. And what what's yeah. the difference between brave and ruthless? Brave means that, that you're gonna do what you gotta do regardless of the circumstances in the in, in, in the face of combat. You know okay. that you wouldn't going you know you wasn't going you could be dependent upon to fire your weapon. Let me put it very simple like that. You know you could de- be depend on to fire your weapon, engage in warfare. Okay. And uh, the the bad thing about that relationship was, man, look, I'm just a flashback. Uh, before I knew him, uh, his. His wife at that time, they was in Vietnam, used to be my girlfriend while I was in high school. I think it was, I was in 11th grade, you know? Okay. And so, and we, and he and I used to play on different Sandlot football teams. I used to play for the Romans, and he used to play for the Stonewalls. It was about two and a half mile difference in, in the location in the neighborhood. And so, but he, the Stonewalls were always, you know, tough guys. You know, we was always at, you know, if you're going to win, you had to be, if you're going to win the championship, you had to beat the Stonewalls. And uh, anyhow, so when I, I came out, when I got over to Vietnam, I ended up in his squad. He was already there. And so, you know, he was always still the same guy, you know, uh, kind of bullish, you know, uh, talking tough all the time. And then one night, one night, uh, our squad, our whole platoon got ambushed. And our squad was the second squad inside the village where we had got ambushed, right? And we got hit. Everybody in the squad got hit in some sort of way except myself, the RTO, that's, that's the radio person, and the squad leader. Everybody got hit was pretty much in front of me or behind me. And uh, Streeter was behind me. And so when 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 when, when the uh, firefight started, uh, I had to get everybody down behind the the, the uh, what we call the hedge row, 
So I, everybody starts, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. And so I start grabbing folks, getting them down behind me, down behind the head ropes where, you know, where they can lay flat and not be hit, not be shot again. And then when I told my my uh, my closest friend, uh, Bobby Williams, out of Philadelphia, and I still haven't found that brother yet here in Philadelphia, or his family here in Philadelphia. But at any rate, uh, I said, Bobby, grab hold, grab hold of the short's leg. Or we called his name at the time. We called him Shorts. I said, grab hold of the short's leg. And, and, and I said, Shorts, pull him, pull Bobby on back down behind him. He refused to do it. He refused to do it, and then he refused to fire his weapon. He refused. He said he was he wanted to give away his weapon, and then the uh, the squad leader at the time, white guy by the name of Lord, I never forget this so plain in my in my mind. He said he said he said the uh, choice of own. I think I call him Streeter. Streeter, if you don't if you don't fire your weapon, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna shoot you. I said, no, Lord, you're not going to shoot him. If you shoot him, I'm going to shoot you. So you know what that's all going to be about. And uh, so I said, look, we're going to put him on the metal rack with the rest of the wounded and get him out of here because it's, he's gone. You know, his mind don't, that left him, you know. Right. And this guy was being, you know, he was he was kind of ruthless himself. You know, he was always running, chasing out. He was gun ho okay. more than I was, right? And so that was what that was all about, man. And I, that really hurt my, I really broke my heart. And then I saw him, I, I think I mentioned the book, that I saw him back in D.C. I was on the, I guess I, he was already on the bus. I get on the bus, walk back towards the rear, and I see this guy. I said, damn, I said, Streeter. And he said, hey. I said, this is Ari. I knew at the time that my name was Kirk. I just go to Kirkland, Kirkland, my last name. I said, this is Kirk, man. He said, yeah, man, how you doing? And then after that, how you doing? He went blank on me. And I didn't know what to say to him after that. So I left him alone, went on, took my seat on the bus. And that's the last time I saw the brother. Wow. It was heavy, man. Big time. Wow. Did that happen to a lot of soldiers? Was that a common I don't know if it happened. I don't, I don't know if it happened to a lot of soldiers. I know I've seen similar things happen to other soldiers. This little white guy that was in our squad, he always, he was so, he was so scared. He was scared of his own shadow. And he always wanted to find a way how he could get out of the field. So he shot himself in the finger. You know? Wow. Okay. And he got himself what they call a going, going home wound. <laughs> you know? <laughs> do what you and so, yeah, that's what, it, that's what it's all about, man. You know? Now, I want to ask you this because uh, you actually um, would be considered a war hero because you received a, uh, was it an Army Commendation Medal? Is that what they call it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, With yeah. Battle? I mean, that, that was. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that was on one occasion, but the occasion that I should have received been decorated, probably a bronze star or something, uh, was at that moment where we got ambushed in that village that I just talked to you about. Okay. Because I was the only one moving my people behind us, you know, the, into a point of safety, you know? Okay. And, uh, but, you know, that's, that's where some of the racism comes in. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the squad leader, which we never really got along, we spoke every now and then because of what we had to do. But, you know, that's some of the dynamics of being black in military in Vietnam that you didn't get the recognition for your your valor, you know? And, uh, but anyhow, the second point, second time when I got the, uh, the uh, accommodation medal was that we was in, myself, I, I, like I originally had an M a MOS call, uh, 11B20. And I used to, that, 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 MOS was basically an infantry MOS, but I was I was assigned to in training 
It was a 106 recordless rifle, a support rifle. It's like a, it's like a, uh, a, uh, a mortar tube, you know. But it's on a, tr- it's on a jeep. And uh, so we, I had got pulled out of the field at that time because I was getting short. I think I might have been about 60 days short. And so I got pulled out of the field along with this other brother named Johnson out of old Orlando, Florida. He had the same MOS. So we, and we were assigned to pull security at the command post in the, uh, LZ Baldy in the name. Command post is where all the colonels, generals, whatnot, house themselves out in the field. Uh, up on the highest part of the base camp, and so we was up on the base camp, up on the at the, at the command post, and mortar rounds started coming in. This was doing the Tet Offensive. This is it was in, in in North Vietnam, not North Vietnam, but the at the very edges at the borders of North Vietnam, where the place called the name. And uh, the, uh, they were they were uh, firing mortars all into the to, into our camp. And uh, at that time, I, me and uh, Johnson, we was just pretty much sitting in our hooch, smoking a joint, you know, thinking about what we're going to do back in the world. Cause we were short timers, man, you know. That's what short timers do over in uh Okay. And uh, and, and uh, so Johnson said, man, it's incoming rent. I said, no, nah, that's not incoming. It's outgoing. Then another one came in. He said, Kirk, that's, that's incoming. I said, okay, I think you're right about that. And we ran and we and we ran to the gun. He got on the gun and I was locking and loading for him. If you for me with a 106 recorded rifle, it's locked, you lock it with a, it's a, a big 105 round, weigh about 40 pounds. And you took two men have to operate the gun. One to fire it, one to load, lock and load it. I do I did all the lock and load, he did all the firing. And uh, so that's how, that's not where the uh, the accommodation medal came in for Valor, right? And uh, I think he got the bronze star at, at, at bronze star at that time. And because we pretty much saved the base camp from any advancement from the North Vietnamese. And again, like I say, the name is in the north of Vietnam. And uh, so it was North Vietnamese regulars, you know, regular soldiers like we were trained. They were like VC, the Viet Cong. Okay. Guerrilla, guerrilla soldiers. These were the hardcore trained uh, military soldiers. And so we knew they had something going when they took the took a moment to come in towards our uh, base camp and fire all those mortars. And so we were firing pretty much right on point, you know. And so we stopped all the mortar firing. And uh, that morning we rode down. Off the top of the hill from from uh, from uh, the command post, everybody started cheering because they knew they, all they could hear was that double boom boom. That's how I step with the one. It's a double blast, one from the front, one from the rear. You can't be standing behind that gun once when it's fired because it'll, it'll blow you up. And so we, we was like boom boom. I heard that all night long. We pretty much probably burnt that barrel up. We fired so many rounds, you know. Right. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So, okay. So, you know, the interesting part about it is, is that, um, you know, you were, you could legitimately be considered a war hero. Um, well, I am. I am a decorated Vietnam veteran. I consider. I'm acknowledging that. Yeah. Okay. So let me back that up. You are okay. absolutely a war yeah. hero, a decorated right. Vietnam veteran, and so that's correct. I want to move that into uh, to get into a little bit um, briefly. We already talked about it, but to get into becoming an, a hero to an anti-hero. Um, so we're going to pause right now for a second.
Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation is a tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit private foundation. Your donations, sponsoring, and funding allows us to create content that raises awareness of African-American traditional music, African-American folklore, and the Black experience. Check the link in the description box to donate. If you wish to sponsor podcasts, documentary series, or underwrite ads in our newspaper, The African American Folklorist, contact the email address in the description box. Okay, brother Ari, let's let's uh, follow up, and I want to talk briefly and quickly about the irony of you being a, a decorated American hero to becoming an anti-hero, and an anti-hero being, um, you know, someone like I get the term from my kids because someone in like the comic books who's like a Wolverine or something character who kind of does bad things or what's considered bad things, but for. Mm-hmm good intention, still being a hero. And why I say anti-hero is because you ended up being a prisoner. You ended up right. going, going to prison because you committed armed robbery um, short, not too long after you came back from the war. And you mentioned that uh, so we don't have to go too deep into that. But um, you talked about being politicized in the army and Obviously, wanting to come back once you got back to be, you know, being a, a civilian and back into pop gym population, uh, you wanted to do become involved in the black movement. Is that That's correct? That's right. Okay. That's and, right. And, and you knew we, you, you figured we needed money. Yes. Okay. So, um, just talk again. Uh, uh, um, in terms of 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 prison going to prison tell me a little bit about that experience and i'm going to say specifically um uh when you got sentenced how long you were sentenced for and some of the 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 good work that you did in prison okay i'm glad you posed that question in the way that you did and to cover that part of my experience um you know as you as you have watched uh, uh, the movie Dead Prison, you'll see that it ended with me, my character, Rich Tate, going on the bus, going to prison. That's right, it did. And that's, and, and that's where pretty much where my life began, you know? Uh, because I was sentenced to 10 to 30 years. And this was kind of contradictory to what uh, God had showed me when I was early, around about 10 years old, you know? And they, I seen that. I, 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 was, I was shown that I was going to war, and after war, I would go to prison for five years. But it gave me 10 to 30 years. You so, know? so you're saying and, you had a vision as at a young age? Yeah, I had a vision. You know, yeah, clear, it was clear as day. You know, I was that type of I was that type of uh, 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 spiritually spiritually developed at a very young age. Okay. And uh, and uh, uh, so now the crime, the actual crime that we committed was uh, robbing the custodian of the mail without putting their lives in danger. That was a mandatory five years. However, because the crime was such a, it was a big notoriety, so much notoriety around it being the largest robbery in the history of Washington, D.C., that they had then added, added on what they call armed robbery, which was like 10 years, from 15 years to life. All right? Okay. And uh, so I ended up with, instead of the five years, I ended up with the 10 to 30 years. So I'm on the bus going down, reflecting on that, 
And uh, so I'm sure you were. <laughs> and so you know, I was. My thing was like, you know, when I got to the prison, I ain't. I'm not doing no work. I'm not doing nothing. So I'm just, you know, they sending me to ten to thirty years. They're not sending me down, down to the work. So when I first got there, I got in trouble already, you know, because I refused to work. So I ended up behind the wall with, with the max, super max, maximum security, you know. And uh, so I, they let me out from high max, put me into the uh, print shop. I refused. I just, I really, I just came out to get some fresh air, man. Let everybody see me, you know. I refused to work in the print shop. They sent me back to max. All right, I did my 90 days back there again. Every time it was 90 days. So I come back to the general population. On the third time, I said, well, I was back. That's the time. I got to stop doing this. this ain't no, I'm just you know, really working against myself. Because at that time, the director of the, uh, of the uh, D.C. Department of Correction was a brother by the name of Deborah C. Jackson. And he had this whole new concept of, 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 uh, of um, imprisonment. Uh, rehabilitation, let me say that way, rehabilitation called inmate self-help programs. And so when I came back out the, out, out, out the second time, I realized, damn, I see all these brothers going in and out, of, out of, going from, from, from Lord Reformatory, that's where, that's where the jump was, the prison was, about, 30, about 26 miles from D.C., back and forth to D.C. to do, do community programs. And it just hit me. I said, I'm Vietnam. I found out that 25% of the, of the prison population were Vietnam veterans. And so I got to work with my little, my organizational skills and uh, pulled together uh, a group of brothers who were veterans, Vietnam veterans, and we formed what we call the Incarcerated Veterans Assistance Organization. And that- Say, say that one more time. The, the name of the organization was the Incarcerated Veterans Assistance Organization. Okay. All right, it was, it was, it was the first Veterans Affairs Office founded and operated by incarcerated veterans and recognized by the VA and the White House. The White House at that time was Jimmy Carter. And you can see the picture of Jimmy Carter greeting me at the White House. I I think that's one of my profile pictures on Facebook. Okay. Uh, And and so then also while I was in prison, a group of brothers, about three or four other brothers, we formed what we call the Associated Library and Research Team for Survival. This was what, it was the message that James Brown gave us at that time. Open the doors, we'll get it ourselves, you know, that type of thing. Okay. He said, oh, look, we ain't going into your education still. Look, we're going to do it. Just give us the books. We'll we educate ourselves. That was our position. And uh, it was a very independent position. But part of that position, we was able to communicate with, at the time, a place called Federal City College in Washington, D.C., which is now known as the University of District of Columbia. And we communicated with a couple of uh, professors there, uh, and uh, they and we encouraged them to come down and set up, uh, set up a Federal City College classes inside the prison so veterans can receive their benefits while they're incarcerated. And that happened. We were successful in doing that. So, so veterans, so previously, what what happened to the veterans' be- benefits when they were, when a veteran was imprisoned? They, 
that, I mean, it was just a no-no. They were saying no veterans can't receive their benefits while they're in prison. So they got cut off. And we said shit. And because we begged to differ. And we, you know, and we, we stood our ground on that. And we had the law on our side. And so it, we pushed through it. It's just that, you know, when you're incarcerated in a prison that where nothing goes but what the uh, what the, what the uh, guards say goes, right. you really don't really be thinking about all the dynamics of, you know, of uh, what you can do and not do in terms of... Of positive types of things, right? Right. You, you're not. And so, but but since being a veteran uh, and uh, one who's, I guess I would say, was you know again coming out of the war, politicized. I understood my situation. I understood what benefits I earned right. in Vietnam. It wasn't like no benefits, like a welfare check, but what we earned by signing on the dotted line and completing a an honorable period of service. All that property, all those benefits become yours, so it's become your property. It's more of a property right. Understood. You see? Okay, understood. All right, so 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 we did that. Um, that was uh, the alerts. Uh, we had an uh, inmate newspaper, first newspaper in the prison. We had uh, uh, incarcerated veterans assistance organization, the first new, first veterans organization in the prison in the United States, and. I was able to travel to Angola, Louisiana, and set up a uh, incarcerated veteran assistance organization there. I also set up one in in Greaterford, Pennsylvania, here in Philadelphia, right outside of Philadelphia, called Greater place called Greaterford. And uh, so I did that when I first came to came to, uh, to to Philadelphia, because at that time a radio show host hosts by the name of uh, what was her name? Not, not Mary Mason. Uh, God, it, it come to me. Anyway, she she was aware of my 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 background, and she said, "Ari, I want you to set one up out here in, in Greatsville." I said, "I'd do it." So she hooked it up with the prison administration, introduced me to them. I laid out the plan to them. We identified the veterans in Greaterford, and what they did, they pretty much uh, locked it into the lifers, veterans who were veterans who was, who had life sentences, you know. Okay. While in D.C., it was any veteran, no matter what you're saying, you could be a part of it. But anyway, at, at any rate, we set that up in uh, Greaterford, Pennsylvania. Okay. Also, I established my religious faith while I was in, in prison. That was going to be my next question because that's where the name hey, came from, right? That's that's correct. Okay. So, I'll talk about that. And um, again, always somebody that always end up uh, really uh, developing a uh, close relationship with a small number of men, right? Three or four people, you know, that's all, you know. Beyond that, that's who you want to work with. That's who you want to trust. That one, you know, who you can depend upon. They can depend upon you. So you get you're able to be, to uh, to develop that blood bond again. That what you call blood love that we call it in Vietnam. And so we defied all other rules of so-called inmate religious organizations in the camp, meaning that we proclaimed our own religious faith was based on the committed uh, religions of of ancient Egypt at the time, 13, 14 BC, 18th dynasty. And uh, we had to fight for that. We had to sue uh, the Department of Corrections to allow us to do that because at that time, the prison chaplain, he didn't understand. He all he understood was Christianity. And he knew in those other religions, you know, yeah. uh, Nation Islam, uh, Islam, and uh, uh, some of them. And what's the uh, and other religions, right? And so, so he didn't understand what we were proclaiming. But you know, religious faith is just that—religious faith. You don't need nobody's approval. 
you proclaim who you are, you right. proclaim your relationship to the creator, and you stand by your post. And that's what we did. So we ended up in the hole, and uh, then sub- we filed a lawsuit, and then subsequently the, the prison administrator, they yielded uh, and uh, allowed us to practice our religious faith, and with all the same accesses to all the uh, uh, chaplains inside the prison, uh, a time to meet, just like like the Christian brothers used to meet. The Zombie brothers had a time to meet. More scientific brothers had a pr- time to meet, and we finally got a time to meet. And it was only four of us. <laughs> that's the thing about it. It was only four of us. Wow. That's how, but this, but that's how clear we were about who we are, and clear about our spiritual relationship. Okay. Right, and uh, and that we was tough in that regard. So wow. that was another. Those three things there. Um, uh, alerts the Associated Library Education Research Team for survival. Where we brought in we brought in the, the University of District of Columbia to set up classes of veterans can receive their benefits. And of course, the Incarcerated Veterans Assistance Organization and the Concentric Order of Azan. No, excuse me, the Concentric Order of March, M A A T, Amat, Choosing Justice. That whole uh, principle of choosing justice that has, that's still with us today that derives its, uh, its um, concept from uh, ancient Egypt. And so that's, there you go. Those are the three major things I did in, in, in prison. Now, you remember this now. I had 30 years. That so at the question. time. Okay, What's the time like, frame I, with all this going on? That's right. That's right. Look, so I'm still one. I said, look, I, you know, I'm, stuff I was doing like it was, it was like extraordinary stuff, you know. And uh, so I decided, so here we go. I'm going to see if I can get me a, a reduction in sentence based on all this work I'm doing. Right. All this community work, all this development work. And so we put together, I, I made contact with a, a, a lawyer at Antioch School of Law, which was a, a law school for the poor and uh, the unrepresented. And I, I laid out my plan to I said, okay, we got, I need to get back in front of the judge. I, well, here's my uh, timeline of things I've done uh, that gives credit towards a reduction of sentence. And he put all put that in the legal context. We went to court. Judge heard the case. And at that time, the judge said, well, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt based on all this year. I'm going to reduce your sentence, your sentence to six to 30 years. Now... At that time, I had already done five and a half years. You see, right? But I got I got the notice that I was going to, uh, that the judge wanted, judge gave me a date a court date at the five year mark, almost to the date, January 16th. You see, 1975. Cause I, I, I've been in prison probably January 16th, 1970, hmm. and uh, and so I got there, was released. And and once I got got the judge gave me resentenced me, I came back to to Lawn Reformatory. Three days later, I was in the streets of D.C. That really never happened. Wait, 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 wait. Let me let me get this right. So you did five five years of some, you know, and you had a you had a ten to thirty, and you did your five. Yeah. You you had done all this all this activity you were talking about was within five years, and then you got right. the bright idea to see if you could get your sentence reduced That's based right. on. Um, all that you've been doing, uh, all the good work that you were doing inside the prison, and once you got managed to see the judge, how long before you were out on the streets? Three days. So, so, so you went and faced the judge. Did you have to speak to the judge? 
Yeah, I was the felony judge. I had okay. to represent myself. You represented yourself. And yeah. you were out three days later. Yes, and the norm is when you get when you get that type of uh, resentencing or release papers or whatnot, it usually take it away from two from from four, from fourteen days to thirty days wow. to process it. You, you think, know, so you think they just wanted you out the prison because you were doing too much good work? <laughs> well, look, I think it, I, I think it was the the word that I, my creator our creator gave me back when I was ten years old. Okay, it kept it kept the word. It kept they allowed the word. me to put myself in that position to get to to actually only do five years. Wow. You so, see, but I did five and a half, but I got the notice that I was gonna be released, or got the court date in, in on on, on the, in my fifth year. You know. Wow. So you went it's, from. It's just heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very heavy. You're talking about being a war hero, to then going to prison, and then doing all this great work in prison and becoming a hero in prison, getting released, and being in front of and meeting the, the president of the United States and being um, uh, uh, um, acknowledged by the president of the United States. That's an, an amazing, amazing life. Amazing, man. How old were you at that time? Let's say I went to the penitentiary when I was like 22 years old because I was just a year ahead of where I could have been resentenced as a juvenile for committing that crime, you see? Okay. But I was I was in my 22nd year as opposed to my 21st year. And uh, so at that time, I was somewhere between 23 and 26. Okay. okay? Okay, wow. And, and yeah, man, and, and look, I continue to work out of prison outside of prison. I end up I ended up being funded by the DC Department uh DC government. I set up the Veterans Affairs Office in my basement of my home in Washington DC on Peabody Street, New Hampshire and Peabody Street Northeast. Anybody from DC listening don't know where that is. Uh and uh and operated from out of it out of my home until uh I was asked to testify before Congress on matters relating to the readjustment of Vietnam veterans. And I did. All right, before Senator Alan Cranston out of California, he sponsored the bill. And uh, this was all based on advocacy from by the Vietnam Veterans of America. I was a member of that organization when I came out of prison. And so we got the law passed and the law allowed for, set forth, Vietnam vet centers all across the United States. For the first time, they had vet centers solely for Vietnam veterans all throughout the United States. And because I was a lead, uh, a, a leader in, in making that happen, they, they offered me a job. I could, I could choose any place, any vet center in the city that I wanted to go to. And I had some nice cities to go to. I, had, I could have stayed in D.C. I had a shot at Philadelphia. I had a choice in uh, New Orleans. I had a choice in, in New Jersey. And I decided that I wanted to go as far south as I could for the for the work for the worst treatment that our veterans were receiving was in the south. So I said I want to go there. That's where I want to be at. And so I ended up choosing Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow. So I I, I went there with, uh, and became a part of a four man team to set up the Vietnam Vet Center there. Wow. You see? Wow. That's, yeah, man. Uh, that, that's uh, that, that's extremely, imp- very, very impressive. Oh, oh, we're gonna pull- it, it, Go ahead, finish that thought, and then we're. No, gonna I'm just saying. I said, I said, I'm not just hooting and pooting. It's all on the public record, man. Well, uh, you know. So, so you say I'm not exaggerating. You got receipts. 
as they say. Y'all got days. receipts, man, for everything I just shared with you <laughs> on the public record, man. And okay. you know, one thing about me, you know, as long as you've known me, I never really talked about me, my my well, personal achievements, have I? No, that's why I, I, that's, I'm specifically making sure that I get this on record because uh, I I actually heard about it from others before I heard heard about some of this stuff from you. It wasn't until about 2000. Uh, nine that I began to really talk about it because I, you, you familiar with brother Dr. Uh, what's the brother's name of in, in Queens? Charles McIntyre. Charles McIntosh. Okay, right. He 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 runs the uh, uh the Sim Hotel Center up there, and uh, he knew about my Vietnam background, and but he also knew I was a reparation, so he asked me to come up and talk about. It. He said, "But Ari." I don't need your on your resume. I want you to talk to talk. I want you to introduce yourself in the context of uh, your war experience, your prison experience. Okay. That's what people want to see, and that movie, you know, at the time. Right. And yeah. you know, so so I did. And, but he's he's the one that really got me to talk about my accomplishment, my personal achievements, right? Along with uh, Sister Joy DeGruy, because she was up there at the same time. Okay. And I asked her some questions around uh, how, whether or not. I could, whether or not my PTSD uh, is my no 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 whether my post-traumatic slave syndrome also is similar to PTSD. Okay. You know, because this is Joy DeGray, formerly known as Joy Leary, Joy DeGrew. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. She does. Uh, she's famous for post-traumatic slave syndrome and her her work um, in uh, educating people on 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 that. So right. Uh, just for the listeners. And, and, and when, and when I met her up there, I told her, I said, I want, you to, I want to bring you to, to Philadelphia and so you can continue to do, do this, your presentation in Philadelphia. We brought her to Philadelphia, man, I think about six months later, and it was standing room only, bro. I mean, the community showed up and she showed out, you know? And uh, so that's my, that's, that's the whole dynamic. I signed up, got broken, I broke myself out of uh, keeping all this stuff inside of me, you know? Absolutely. Well, um, I'm glad we got that on record and we, and we conversed about that. And I want to now go into um, the present. Uh, Ari Maretazan, I get it wrong. Say it again for me. Maretazan. Maretazan. Exactly. All right. There you go. Stay with Ari yes, Maretazan right. as a reparationist.